The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. So we left off uh, in... We- sunk below the surface, but we are just sinking deeper and deeper as we trace the iceberg of culture here. So we spent some time talking about um, <clears throat> about the way that culture affects the way that we see the world around us. And we spent a little bit of time talking about some of the, the superficial things that to us seem like a really big deal. Um <coughs> And they seem like a big deal for reasons that we'll talk about in just a second. But as we have been looking further and further at what culture is and how culture constructs itself, we've seen that it it presents almost like a set of goggles to us that we put on. And they color the way that we see the world around us, the way that we interact with the world around us. And the point of that is for us to, one, to recognize our own culture, to recognize the the ways that we're shaped by the culture that we live in, but also to recognize that that's true about everyone and every culture. Um, Because when we are reading scripture, whether we're reading scripture together as a group or individually on our own, when we read scripture, we are engaging in a cross-cultural dialogue. We're having a conversation with somebody who lived in a very different culture and spoke a very different language from ours a very long time ago. Sometimes thousands and thousands of years ago, but, but certainly a very long time ago. And so the interaction that we have with the text as we are entering into this conversation in the presence of the Lord, as we're entering into this conversation, we need to recognize that we have a culture of our own and that they have a culture of their own and that the hallmarks of culture are not things that we can just write down really quickly, but rather they are the ways that the culture views reality and they are so central to who we are as people that sometimes we just assume that everyone sees the world in that way. And so the the framing question we have for, for this book and for the next one is, what goes without being said? What are the things in our own culture that go without being said? What are the things in the culture of the, the Eastern world, and especially the ancient Near East, that go without being said? And it's important for us to, to, to talk about that because the reality is that for us as... <clears throat> As Americans, the culture that we have, that one, one of the hallmarks of our culture is that it, it norms itself. It understands itself to be true culture or pinnacle culture, maybe. We're going to talk about what, how that happens tonight because we're going to talk about the way that our culture sort of understands uh, the universe as a whole. Um, but one of the hallmarks of our culture is that it, it almost imagines itself to be invisible and you can see that in the way that we use language right so we talk about we talk about culture 
in terms of multicultural things. We're, we talk about other cultures, right? There's, there's us, and then there are those that are, are cultural, right? Our, our practices, our beliefs, our perspectives are normal, and the other ones are cultural practices or, or exotic practices. Or you, We might list them as the particular region those cultures come from. Oh, well, that's, that's an Asian point of view. When, when, when it may be an Asian point of view, but ours is not a neutral point of view. It's not. It's not devoid or divorced from the from the values of a culture, and those values have been passed along by the culture. And the the trouble with that is that for many of us, we we get into a headspace of thinking that our way is right, not that our way is cultural. And and this is particularly true of our culture, the farther down the iceberg we get. We begin to get to places where we imagine not only are other people incorrect, but we're not sure that they either are particularly intelligent or particularly good. Like, people who disagree with us on some of these fundamental things, we might look at them and go, "Mm, I feel like you probably don't know who Jesus is uh, because you don't see, uh, you know, the, the relationship that, that we have in this particular way. And we're going to talk about what that looks like and, and unpack some of those. But it's important, I think, for us to know that ahead of time and to make sure that we're clear about, uh, about the fact that we're recognizing not only that, that there is a monolithic culture in place for each of the writers in, in the scripture, but that there's also a monolithic culture that's in place in, in us as well. And that the point of our discussion isn't for us to like reject being Western, uh, modern, postmodern Americans and, and sort of dive into this other thing. This other world doesn't exist anymore. It's, it, it, it's not there. There are ways of seeing it in, in modern places, but you can't go to the Middle East and experience the culture of Scripture. It doesn't look that way anymore. Um, and the, the same is true no matter where you are. So the authors in this book, they, they will draw from various experiences that they've had in the Middle East and in Asia, sometimes in South America, the different places where they've done ministry to illustrate those points, but not to say that what we need to do is we all should just move to the Philippines because then we'll really understand the gospel, right? The point is for us to recognize that, that whether I am a Filipino Christian or an American Christian, I'm still entering into a multicultural conversation when I read scripture, and I need to be aware of my own cultural blinders, the the goggles that I'm wearing that color the world, and to recognize that there are things in scripture that go without being said, and that it's important for us to know those happen so that we can ask the right questions as we're reading scripture together. Okay? If it's of any comfort, other cultures look at us and think we're lost. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that's that, that's one of those that that's worth holding on to, you know, keeping it sort of in the front of our mind. So the first one that we're going to talk about is is kind of in this middle place as we're transitioning from just below the surface to deep below the surface. We're going to talk about the way that culture views time. And as soon as you say that, it should be a little bit confusing because doesn't everyone have clocks? Don't all cultures use time? The the fact is no. Many places don't have clocks. Uh, that, that they just they, they don't. But but also they don't see clocks in the way that we see clocks. They don't live their lives based on the the rhythmic cycle of a clock, which is really off putting for for us because we live in a culture where we we have this idiom that we throw around and we say time is money. 
But deep below the surface, we actually believe that. We believe that time itself is a resource and that it's limited and that you invest it and that you spend it and that you waste it and that you say we have all of this specialized lingo to talk to, that that all comes from economics and we just drop it into the way that we the way that we manage time even that word managing time is is that say it's the same the same thing as managing a budget you've got to budget your time you've got to you've got to make sure that your 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 the balance is right in these things and you think about like the the values in our culture this is going this is this is going up and down the the length of the iceberg here but you think about like in our culture we talk about efficiency and we talk about punctuality and we talk about planning and we talk about predictability and all of those are virtues in in our culture and so there are vices that are attached to them also like the way that you use or misuse time or misuse my time also has a a value attached to it right inefficiency and, and tardiness and nearsightedness and being undependable. Like those kinds of things are immediately negative. And we're like, yeah, people shouldn't be like that. Uh, because in the world that we live in, time is money. Time is a resource that has to be spent in a particular way. So here's the first thing that, that we typically think about time is, is that word that I use, that time is a limited resource. So that's the first thing that we're going to put up on the board. Time is a limited resource. There's not enough. Uh, there's not enough of it to go around. <clears throat> but time for us is also linear. Now, what do I mean by time being linear? We, <coughs> as Americans, well, this is this is really we as Westerners. We have very deeply precise language for talking about time. So here's, here's an example of what I mean by that. We're going to use the word ran. And think about this in, in, in terms of, of, of running, okay? I ran. I am running. I will run. I run. I have run. I will have run. Think about all of the, we, we don't just have the, 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 the action of running or whatever the verb is. We don't have the verbing. We have all the possible iterations and even possibilities of, of iterations, both past and present. I might will have. We can, we can adjust all of that so that we can be so very specifically precise about when a specific event is going to happen. Now, if you contrast that with Greek, right? We're not going all the way back into the ancient world because in the ancient world, time doesn't even function the way that it does. But in, in the Greek world, they have clocks and so they can, they, they can measure the, the, the time of day. They don't typically measure it in a super precise way. They break, the, they break the clock up into quarters of daylight and quarters of nighttime and that, that functions. We, 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 we just call them the hours and the watches. Um, that's just the easiest way to sort of break those down. But we, they basically have a, an understanding of this. But in that world, they don't talk about time. In the Greek language, it doesn't talk about time in the same way that we do. So when you're learning Greek, you come across this thing that's called the aorist tense. And it's, it's a particular tense of a word that means past tense. It's a past tense word. <coughs> Sometimes. But there also are ways of moderating the aorist tense. So that sometimes it means uh, there's, there's a present aorist 
So they have a present past tense word. And they have a future aorist, which is a future past tense word. Yeah, it specifically is about aspect. So it has to do, they're, what they're interested in this word is whether it is a thing that has happened or a thing that has an ongoing or a durative quality. And that's, that, that, that's all that they've got in Greek. That's all that you have to work with. Because for them, time doesn't require the same kind of specificity that ours has. Typically, in, in, the, in the majority world, when you talk with somebody about time, they, it, it's, it, they're, they're going to function in time as though there is yesterday and today and tomorrow. And today might be broken down into three or four smaller segments. Uh, but typically, that's the way that people think about time. That's, that's just culturally the way that people think about time. Uh, and so there's not a value about, you know, we've, we've, we've got to, you know, make hay while the sun shines. Um, because you can always make hay tomorrow. There, there, there's, there's always going to be a tomorrow until there's not anymore. And that's just the way that the world works. That's, that's the way that the majority of the world sees and understands how time functions. Which is really frustrating for Westerners when we get into situations where we're having to, you know, moderate uh, Time, you know, when when people say, "Oh, well, church begins at, at this particular hour." In the book, they talk about church beginning at a particular hour. I think in the Philippines, uh, and the hour that they they would they, what he thought was that it meant just before noon. So after after mid morning and before noon was this what was the time, and so he 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 went to a place and he got there, and there the people had already been there for two or three hours. At, at that point, and and uh, you know they were very gracious, but he was confused because he said, "Well, I thought I needed to arrive then." And they said, "No, you need to arrive," and they said the same word that he said, and he figured out that what it means is it's when the day becomes uncomfortably hot. That's that's this particular time, which could span midday, but sometimes that does that's not until eleven, and sometimes that's at eight thirty in the morning, and you don't know when that's going to be. It's just when it when when the day gets really hot, let's go inside and we'll have our meeting. That was the way that they understood it. They're like, yeah, it's, the, it, it, it's like, okay, well, let's schedule the church meeting for Monday at hot. Like, how do you do that? It did, like, it, it doesn't, we feel like, oh, well, probably it's because they're not very bright. Like, let's be honest. There's a part of our brain right now that's like, I feel like maybe they probably don't, uh, you know, they, they don't know how the world works. Because the assumption for us is, we understand how the world works, yeah. and our way is correct. You don't understand hot. <laughs> right? yeah. yeah, we don't understand hot. That's what it boils <laughs> well, down and, to. And, and I mean, you know, uh, we're I a lot more Arizonans disconnected from, from our natural <laughs> environment <laughs> than many cultures past and present. I mean, there's even no, a term psychologists are coining called nature deficit. Mm -hmm. That, you know, and so, like, we're not used to... We're we're not used to a having to be aware of of what's happening in our environment and have that dictate right what we do. So in in this context, what we're going to call that is being discreet, and that means that we can be very very specific about the time. Uh, you know, for us, church doesn't start at hot. Church <laughs> starts at eleven a.m. and we have Bible study. At, or we have we have Sunday school at ten a.m. And, like, I went to a church that the service started at 10.45 a.m. And that, you know, it was like we can be even more specific than just the hour markers. We can be specific about everything. I had to watch my, my clock today because the bells for all of the classes at East Middle are broken 
But I have to make sure that at 3.08, the children know that they now have three minutes to get to from 6th period to 7th period. At 3.08, and there's no bells. So I just have to watch my clock for this ridiculous number that doesn't divide into anything. It doesn't fit into any kind of a framework. It doesn't fit into anything. There's no, there's no discernible rhyme or reason. But at 3.08, this class is over. And at 3.12, the next one begins. How hot was it? But how hot was it? And then it wasn't because that storm front came through. And it, was, it, was, it cooled everything off. It messed up your schedule completely. It threw everything off. Just an example from my childhood when they were teaching me how to read a clock in Argentina. Mm-hmm. Went up to third grade. They never taught me minutes. They just taught the the they just uh, taught hours by, by by hours and half hours. Mm-hmm. So whenever you add, like if you stop somebody on the street and they say what time it is, if you said somebody it's three twenty two, they'd look at you like you're insane. Mm-hmm. So when does that cross over to the next hour? So is it three o'clock even to like three fifty nine? Oh, it doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> well, you get like halfway, you're like, yeah, four. no, it's just sort of like after three, close to four. Oh, okay. I don't count. Like so if you, yeah, so if you meet, like in Argentina, if you have a doctor's appointment, they only give you morning appointments and afternoon appointments. Oh. No hours, no times. And just whoever shows <coughs> up, and everything runs on a number system. So you show up, you take a number, you wait your turn. That's how they help. They do but you don't, you don't actually ever have an appointment at a certain time. <laughs> Interesting. That's that's almost all of South America. You, you just need to, you, you just, just need to show up sometime in the right, morning. Right. Yeah. Argentinian is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he needs to. Like he's very mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and it can be difficult for Westerners in in majority world context because, like, when when does church end? Yeah. It, it 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 ends when when it's time to end. It starts when everybody's there, yeah. which is when when, when everyone has arrived. Then church begins, and that may be at nine in the morning, or it may be at eleven. We don't know how long it's going to take. When everybody's here, then it's the right That's time to start, I and swear, we, we and continue worshiping South until America, church never ends. Mm-hmm. As a kid, like, <laughs> just yeah, un, un, until it's done. In Mexico, whoever showed up with the food, whoever got there with enough food to feed everybody, <coughs> there you go. My parents had this, um, it was fun watching my parents interact with my sister-in-law when my brother and she were first married, because she's Mexican, mm-hmm. and so, and my dad's Navy. <laughs> so it was like two very different cultures yeah. 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 Um, interacting with each other, and my parents would it was, it was hilarious. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what I wrote on the board then is the way that the, the, the majority world sees this is, is that time is about orderliness, but it's not about sequence. For us, it's about sequence. It's, it, it's in fact about, because for us, sequence and precision equal correctness. Like, the more precise something is, the more accurate it is, right? We, we, have, we have morally loaded language for, for the way that we describe <coughs> these minuscule units of time, right? The more accurate it is, the more... But for, the, for, for most of the world and for most of human history, it's more about the order that something happens. And this has to do with the... the, the in, in the book particular, they talk about why this is important in terms of storytelling because storytelling for us is usually about precision you think about like the last time that you had a a fender bender and uh you had to send the police report into the insurance company in order to have the the claim processed and you go through and you read the 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 way that the police report is written and this is you know this is written by somebody who's trying really hard 
um, you know, but doesn't have tons of training, but he has lots of experience. And so the, the officer will sit down and, and will, will write out this, this report. And it's this kind of language. It's, it, it's about precision because for us, the very finest details are the things that matter. But in storytelling, generally, it's not about the details. It's about the order of the story. It's about telling the story in the correct way, not telling the story necessarily in the way that it happened or in the specific sequence. And we see this. The reason that I bring this up is because there are some assumptions that we can carry with us uh, when we encounter Scripture. So when we're reading the New Testament, we have four Gospels. And as Westerners, we have divided the Gospels up into two groups. There are the synoptic Gospels, which means the Gospels that are told in chronological order. They're, they're told in small, concise synopses, the synoptic Gospels, and then John. Like we, don't have, we, we have the synoptic Gospels, and there's John. Because John tells every story out of order, and he tells stories that aren't in any of the other Gospels, and he tells things in, in these, these sequences that don't line up with anything else, because John is interested in telling a story. And the danger for us, and, and this, is, this is shown up repeatedly in, in, in Western biblical <laughs> studies, is that we have a tendency to devalue things that don't show up in a linear way because we see them as being untrustworthy. Like, oh, well, they made it up. They made it up. Or, well, that's just a story. And we'll call it, well, that's a sayings gospel. That's one of the, the catchphrases that, that the, the, the elite biblical scholars love to use. It's, it's a sayings gospel. It's just a collection of stories. And they, he just ordered them together. But last week, or actually this week on Sunday, we celebrated the liturgy from, from the, the, the Laura Missal. Now, I, I mentioned, I think, in, in passing that this, that this liturgy wasn't actually discovered until the early 1800s because it was sealed up in, uh, in, in a, a relic box, a reliquary box, and nobody messed with it. They knew that it was, there was something important in there, but nobody was going to mess with it, and so it just passed along. And then the Duke of Buckingham in, in the late 1700s bought this library, and it had this, this reliquary, and he, 10 or 15 years later, had it sent to one of the museums, and they opened this up, and they found this missile book in, in there. And a missile book is not uh, an altar book, right? The, you guys have seen the big red altar book that we have. That has all of the liturgies, and it has said versions and sung versions, and it has all of the, the proper prefaces, and it's, it's got everything in, in this one book. A missile is not like that. A missile is, is, a, is a small little book that has the very, very specific stuff that you need in order to get a service done, because you know all of that other stuff, or you could, in the early church, you just make it up on the spot. That was the way that liturgy was, was not as, as fixed as, as it became by the, like the, the, you know, by the, the split, you know, in, in the, the, the first millennium. Um, you had to have some way to really tell, you know, who's the good guys and who's the evil heretics. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so in this book, it's got a, a short Eucharistic liturgy. It has a short baptismal liturgy. And it has a short um, anointing of the sick liturgy. And in the front of it, it has, a, it has an assortment of gospel passages. Okay. 
And that's it. That's all that's in the book. So literally, you would go to somebody's house. Is this person sick? Then I flip to the back of the book, and I've got, I've, I've got this here, and I've got the, the gospel, and I'll read the gospel to them, and I'll read this. Is this person about to die? I've got the liturgy here. I can do the, the last rites. We can do communion with the family, and we're good to go. Is this person need to be baptized? Does somebody else in the house need to be baptized? But this is a traveling book, which is why it was put in this case. The case was added to over years and years and years, but it's in this case because it's waterproof. Like, you're, you're wandering through the hills of northern england and 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 you know southern scotland it's going to get wet and so they put a metal case around this book so it doesn't get messed up because they don't you know it's either that or uh you know a a special leather pouch for it but the gospel in the front of it is only excerpts from the gospel of john that's all that's there if you were a traveling priest somewhere connected with St. Aidan's group in the north of England and you had to go visit the sick, they didn't send you with a gigantic Bible and a huge prayer book. They sent you with a prayer book that was literally half as thick as our prayer book and half as wide. This, this is 30 centimeters by 60 centimeters and it's about, it's about an inch thick. That's the whole, the whole book, this tiny little, it's like double the size of the little prayer books that we have, the little quarter sheet prayer books. That's it. That, that's all that this was. But for them, they felt like if you are going to minister the gospel, this is how it's going to happen. The privilege that the, the church assigned was not based on which, which person told the story in the right order. It was which are the stories that God is telling to his people in these situations. And that's where the, the, the emphasis was. And let's be honest, that makes us a little uncomfortable. Like, but what about all of the other stuff? Yeah, and, well, and also as well, I mean, you know, we, uh, we, we, have su- we have such a correspondence between, like, forensic linear history mm-hmm. and truth right. that if it doesn't line up with that, it's... History and really truth be, are equal. Right. Really be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess, uh, and if I'm jump, jumping the gun here, just tell me to shut up. Uh, shut up. But <laughs> uh, so is this kind of leading to like the uh, like Chronos versus Kairos? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, that's the distinction that the, the authors point that out. So in in biblical Greek, there are two words that they use to talk, to talk about time. One is chronos, and it's just like the word chronological for us. That, that, that's the way that works. But the word kairos is more like what we were talking about, like what Andy was talking about in South America. It has to do with the right time. It's at when, when the time was right. And we find that showing up in scripture a lot. You hear scripture literally using that phrase, at, you know, when, when the time was right. <coughs> Uh, you know, at the right time, at the appointed time, when 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 it was appropriate, in the fullness of time, like it shows up again and again, because the biblical authors are telling us the story of God's work among God's people, and so it's entirely possible we we should be able to 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 sit down with the Gospels and say, you know what, there's going to be some sequential differences between. Uh, Matthew and Luke, because they're they're they have different sources um, and they are moving in very different groups. Matthew is headed into Syria. Luke is headed into in, into Asia Minor and and eventually into Rome. They're they're not they're, they're not drawing off of all of the same resources as they compile these stories together. And yet, there is there is such incredible agreement, and the places that they differ. Are, are astounding, and that's just in Matthew and Luke. Think about like if you were to if, if you were to say, well, the chronological story is the one that matters. So we're gonna we're gonna put all of our emphasis on Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
but we leave out John. That means that we, we never have anybody in Scripture talking about Jesus as the Logos. We don't have uh, Jesus sitting on the rooftop with, with Nicodemus. We don't have Jesus talking about himself as the Good Shepherd. Uh, we never hear Jesus' farewell discourse and, and the reminder of those who, who will believe but have not yet. Um, all of those things are, are lost because we put too much emphasis where it shouldn't be. Instead of simply allowing the, the biblical writers to speak to us and to encounter them in that way and to just let them speak. And that's the important thing for us as we're doing this study is to learn how to let the authors speak and to quiet some of those some of those things that sort of flare up in us because they happen and and sometimes they happen about time um, but more often they happen about other things so what i want to talk about for the rest of our time is this idea of rules versus relationships in the rules versus relationships um are far below the surface that the things that we're going to talk about oftentimes we don't understand them as functions of culture we think about them as functions of society that like where an ordered society exists this happens because that's how people are in the book they have this fantastic quote they say that these things are so fundamental to our experience that we can't imagine other viewpoints being right or christian like we, we can no longer see other points of view and, and say, oh, well, yeah, that could be true. And it, now, on this first one, we're going to talk about some of these things, but we as a community have spent years now unpacking some of these details. This, this aspect of rules and relationships is going to be a big part of the next book that we read also. Um, because, spoiler alert, we're going to spend some time talking about what patronage looks like in, in the ancient world. Um, so I'm only going to give us a very brief, sadly superficial viewpoint of this, but we're going to dive deeper as we're, as we're, um, as we're reading. So in the West, we typically see the world through a lens of laws. Um, we believe that the, the, the universe itself operates under this, this set of, of laws and principles and that they govern not just that they govern society, but like they govern the physical reality in which we dwell. Um, and so what happens in, in the West, and this doesn't begin just in the Enlightenment, because the Enlightenment begins as an offshoot of Protestantism. And Protestantism begins as an offshoot of, of medieval mysticism. And, and medieval mysticism begins, and we can just like keep going back to explain, which is, which is important for us to recognize that this isn't something that just happened because we happen to be Americans. This is something that's true across the board in, in Western culture. And so the, the worldview that we have has very, very deep, long-set roots. And we don't just sort of pick them apart and, and decide which ones we're going to hang on to and which ones we're not. That's not how it works. What I want us to be able to do is to recognize that there are places in our own, uh, our, our own minds where we have a certain understanding of the world. Um, and it's very difficult for us to think outside of that box. So what happened for us is that we began to discover that there are 
basic principles that help us to understand the world around us. And we refer to them as physical laws. And that these physical laws gave birth to the, the hard sciences. And the hard sciences then eventually move us into the soft sciences. And so what we, what we have come to believe is that the universe that we live in is built upon principles. It's built upon a set of, of rules. And the goal for us as human beings, if we want to flourish, is to discover those rules and learn how to live in the midst of those rules. And that if we do that, then we will be not just safe, but we'll be happy, and we'll be healthy, and we will have... You think about, like, the self-help books that exist in the world. They're, they're always about discovering the secret laws. Almost all of the self-help books that exist in the world are, let me give you ten secrets for how to have uh, a healthy marriage, or let me give you ten rules for, for dating my teenage daughter. Or let me give you seven habits of a successful seven life. habits of, of a highly successful fill in the blank after that right like we, we have this notion in our heads that not only do do the do the laws of physics guide our, our reality and and we don't have time to dive all the way into that but we, we we could at another point talk about how the laws of physics are sort of laws of physics <laughs> that physics breaks constantly and. That's part of the law that it doesn't apply always. We could get we're, that's a that's a bunny trail. We won't we don't have time for it. We don't have time for that. Stop it, Lee. But here's the way that we look at it. we look at these these rules are universal. These rules are absolute, and anytime there is something that that requires those rules to be flexible, we we feel like it is lowering ourselves to become flexible. And so we say, oh, which is, which is part of how our culture constructs itself as this is, this is society and others are cultural or multicultural or ethnic or exotic. Like, they're not doing it right, but we're going to make accommodation for them because, you know, they, you know. They, we're good people. Because we're good people and, you know, that's, it's, kind, it's kind of us to, you know, to lower ourselves. Wrong to, people should be allowed to exist. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, that is exactly it. <clears throat> so the question at the basis of this is, how does the world function? And in the West, we believe that there are fixed laws that govern the universe. And once again, we're not just talking about the laws of physics. We're not talking about thermodynamics and, and, and gravity and what have you. We're talking about every part of our of our existence every part of the world that we live in has these fixed laws these are these are the ways that things happen and if you can do all of the things right then again you will be you will have mental health and you will have uh, relational health and you will have uh, physical health and we it, it's as though if we discover the secret code suddenly we will tap into the 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 mystery of the universe in the majority world relationships Norm and what do they do? <laughs> Another what, thing. What's my other word? Inform. Norm and inform. I was like, it rhymes. Why can't I remember the rhyme? Relationships, norm, and inform the rules. Now, we're going to unpack that as clearly as I can because, once again, I don't come from this culture, and so we're we're gonna we're we're gonna try. Andy, feel free to to jump in at any point and and help us out with this. Here's what we mean by that: when 
we as individuals look at the world around us, we see that there is a, there's a network of relationships. And we see all of these relationships. We see them in, in the physical world, we see them in the material world, and we see them in the social world. But when we see those relationships, our understanding, broader understanding, is that deep below those are rules. That the rules are what govern everything else. Our assumption, our way of seeing the world is that on the surface, there are relationships. We can see how things are related together. But the governing principle, right? There's that language again, both governing and principle. The governing principle of all of life are these rules. And if we discover the rules, then the relationships work. And if we don't, then these things start to fall apart. And we can, we can fix the things that have fallen apart by just uncovering the right rules. Now, in the rest of the world, when people look at a, an issue in society or an issue in the world around them, what they see are rules. There are rules that are in place. But the thing that holds the rules together are relationships. And this makes us very uncomfortable when we live over here. When we come out of a world that only understands reality as, as a thin veneer stretched across a, 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 a deep, hidden, Gnostic pool of rules... Uh, this, this idea that really the bedrock of reality is relationships, it makes us deeply uncomfortable because it doesn't feel safe. And here, this, we're, we're talking like in big general terms. So let's make it specific. When we're reading scripture, the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, when we're reading the first, if you've ever tried to do one of those Bible in a year plans, and the Bible in a year plan is like, we're going to start in Genesis, and we're going to make it to Kings. And off we go. And they just, you know, you get into, like, the, 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 the fourth week, the third or fourth week in January, and you're, you know, hip deep in Leviticus, and then that's kind of the end of the Bible in a Year pre- program. It, just, it doesn't work because you get in there, and it doesn't make sense anymore because for us, we see these rules, and when we look at them, we're saying none of these rules make sense. These rules don't relate to other rules, and it doesn't use the right language. Obviously, these are the wrong rules. What I need to do is skip past the rules so that I can find the, the rules that actually matter. And so we skip ahead, and we find the rules that coincide with the rules that make us more comfortable, which is, is really what it boils down to. On the flip side, it makes those rules very confusing to us. Because what does God say over and over and over again, especially in Deuteronomy? This is the covenant that I have made. If you adhere to my covenant, there will be blessings. If you, uh, if, if you violate the covenant, there will be curses. Uh, and and I, will, I, I will release you. And then we read scripture. And over and over and over again... All that Israel, and later Israel and Judah do, is violate all of those rules all the time. In fact, for most of, for most of the, 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 the history of, of Israel, and, and later Israel and Judah, most people didn't even know that the rules existed and just did whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. There was not this golden age where everybody had you know, a, you know, a Torah in the marketplace and everybody knew what was going on. It never existed, it never happened. That was, that was not a part of God's, God's people's experience. But for us, we look at that and we say, well, but then God doesn't turn them over. He, he, never, he, he never does. And then when he finally does, to us it feels really arbitrary. And that's the trouble for us, is that like when, when we hear about a rule existing, and it's a, a hard and fast rule, like um, 
like one of them is you know, we're we're all familiar with the the dietary laws that are in place. There are certain certain kinds of clean and unclean foods, but there are also building codes in in the Old Testament. Uh, like every home that God's people live in has to have a parapet wall around the top of it. Um, otherwise, if somebody falls off of your roof and dies, then that's on you because God told you to put a fence up and you didn't. There are there are laws in the Old Testament that when we read them, we look at them and we go. Why does this matter? Like, who who cares? This uh, this this isn't a thing that makes any in any sense. It doesn't make any difference. Why is there all of this time and energy being put into having this discussion about rules? Because for us, discussing the rules is discussing the heart of the matter. And if the rule doesn't make sense to us, then we feel like somebody else is not communicating to us correctly. Like like they're telling us a story that doesn't have a a, a moral or worse. What if that rule is just a cultural rule? Well, then which ones are cultural and aren't cultural? Like, which, which rules do I have to hold to and which ones don't I? You know, I'm like, well, there's all these laws about human sacrifice alongside laws about not planting two seeds in the same soil. Uh, and what do I do with that? And for us as Westerners, it feels like we either have to, we, which, which we have often done, especially as Protestants, we've said none of the rules apply because Jesus and it's just this it's just this blanket thing like well Jesus said none of the rules apply. Actually he said exactly the opposite of that. He said he said there's not a piece of one of the rules that will go away until everything has been made complete, until everything has been finished. Jesus says, uh, I didn't come to uh to to abolish the law. I came to make it fuller than it ever was before. But but we are we we are so uncomfortable with these rules because we believe that the universe is ordered, that we have, we have taken our own sense of order, and we use language of, of currency and language of, of, uh, of, of the criminal law courts, and we just sort of dump that onto it, and we explain how all of these things happen using language that makes us comfortable, but is completely foreign to the experience of the, the, the world of, of Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We have often come up against that as um, as Anglicans because we're Anglicans in the Bible Belt, um, and so people are oftentimes scandalized by the fact that we uh, drink, right? That we we have uh, we we have alcohol um, not only as part of our worship but usually as part of our fellowship. Um, you know, we've made a rule in our in our community about about liquor. So we, we just have wine and beer at, at our events. But even that is scandalous to some people. Some, to s- some people, that the, the idea of Christians drinking is so off-putting, so taboo, that they, that they, can't, um, they, they can't even imagine that we could be a real church. And again, because these rules are so fundamental in the way that they understand what Christianity is and how it works. It's at such a deep core level that they, we, we don't we don't see how somebody could be a Christian and still choose to do those things. Well, I mean, we view everything through the lenses of right and wrong, mm-hmm. and rules are what govern which fits into which category. Yes. Black. Yeah, very much black and white. In, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is describing this issue that's happening in the, in the Corinthian <laughs> church, and the issue is about uh, food that's been sacrificed to idols. And we in the West would say, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. That's icky. 
Um, <laughs> one of those is back up the iceberg. We have assumptions about like tied into ethnicity about what sacrifice to idols means. Like in our heads, we have this this uh, the, this sort of storybook picture of you know all of these people gathered around in you know in a giant white marble building and you know there's a, a priest and you know he does all of these silly things because that's that's the way that that image of of sacrifice and and that has been conveyed to us. But in in Paul's world, in the world of Corinth, when food was being sacrificed to an idol, there was you know let's say there, there was there was a god in ancient Rome who was a god that scared away vermin. And so let's say that you're your tenement that you were living in had a bunch of rats. Well, then the people, the usually two, two or three of the rich people in that community, would invite the the priest for that that particular religion, and he would gather a couple of of, of acolytes, and they would carry a, a <clears throat> an idol, and they would put it in the middle of your um, your community, and they would burn some incense, and they would kill some animals, and then there would be a giant barbecue, and the whole neighborhood would come out. And they would celebrate the barbecue. There was no pagan temple. There were no prayers being offered. There was none of that. It was just some of the people believed that if you did this the, the right thing, it was it was what we would interpret as being superstition. If you did the right thing and you had the the, the right particular random you know god of no rats, uh, if you had his his idol in in the in the neighborhood, then your problems went away. And if you made him happy, and if you made if you made him happy, you you give him food and you eat food at his table, then all of your problems are gone. He's going to make the rats go away, and nobody will mess with your grain source. And for us, when 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 we think about that, we're like, well, then yeah, maybe it's not a big deal if if you go and have dinner with your neighbors. And Paul kind of makes that point. He makes that point in that way in a couple of places. But he, he does it in this way. He says, think about the weaker brothers and sisters in your community. Especially those brothers and sisters who gave themselves over to that kind of worship. Because, you know, in a, a, a PG-ish way of describing it, the, the way of appeasing the particular desires of a god didn't always just end with, you know, having dinner. <laughs> There, there, there were lots of other ways to bring bring the God's presence into in, into your community that were not PG. Um, these these people that have come into your community then see you sitting at a table eating. Now, and Paul says, now we know that the idol is a nothing. That there there are no other gods. That the idol is just uh, you know a, a bundle of sticks and a bit of straw, some some twine and some branches. Who cares? Paul says we know this. But I want you to think about the other people in your community. And so Paul doesn't, but, but the, the problem is that in, in, in that chapter, Paul doesn't say, so don't eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. Now we are like, Paul, I need you to tell me whether or not to eat the food that's been sacrificed to idols. And Paul doesn't. Paul says, it depends. And we're really uncomfortable, as Westerners, we're really uncomfortable with that. Because it's, it's all well and good for us to say, you know, we believe in, 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 in these things. But like when it comes down to rules about how the world works, you know, is it right to eat food that's been sacrificed to an idol? Paul says, it depends. And it makes us really uncomfortable. Because we, we want to know. We've got to know, Paul. Like, what, what is it that we're supposed to do? You know? And it doesn't just apply to, to, to that situation. Paul does this again and again and again. And really the Bible does this again and again and again. Because what they're looking at is they're saying there are rules. And it comes back to 
the relationships themselves. Like the, the rules are in place because they give a boundary around the relationships. They, they're, they're markers that show us where the community is and where the community is not, but they're not typically fixed and they're, they're not impermeable. The, the boundaries seem to move and, and give, especially in the context of the, of, of the New Testament, because that's the way that human society really works. The, 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 the fixed laws that... It, the, the trouble is that for us, like for me, it's, it makes me really uncomfortable. Like I, I don't feel safe reading Paul in that way because I, I immediately will default to you know, some other reading and say, oh, well, you know, this, this makes me more comfortable. I feel more safe o- over here because there's a, you know, there's a hard and fast rule and we just say yes and we just say no and then that's the end of it. Um, but he doesn't seem to let us do that. Can I, can I give uh-huh. it related back to the time? So my dad would get very, very frustrated because he would set a time for somebody to come and meet with him to do ministry or something. And they may or may not show up at time. And it totally depended on who they met on the way to see. So they would go, they'd start to go to the meeting. They're following the rule. But if they met a friend, the friend always trumped the rule of meeting on time. So they would just not keep the meeting and go there. And then they would be really offended. My, my dad would call them out like, well, why did you disrespect me by wasting my time. Mm-hmm. They're like, well, how could you ask me to ignore my brother who mm-hmm. I met on the street who I hadn't seen for a couple weeks, Right. and we had a coffee together instead. And so both people would be offended, and they, but they, their relationship trumped the rule. Mm-hmm. And also and, trumped time. Right, and for us, like we, we see rules as being external to us, and that's what makes everything fair. But in this world, it, it's it's not external. It's part of the relationship, and so Scripture often tells you to do things that for us feel kind of skeevy. They're like, "Well, you should make friends with sinners so that it, you know when when things go wrong for you, you've got a place to sleep at night." They're like, "You should just keep whining because eventually the judge will just get tired and he'll do whatever you tell him to do." And and I'm not just quoting random proverbs. We're quoting Jesus. Like those are those are things that Jesus told us to do. But he does that in this context because he understands that in that world, in, in, in a world where things are based on relationship, it's not fair. Everything has strings attached. And that's the way that the world is. But for us, we're like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's that we, you know, we have, we have negative, not just negative connotation, but we have specialized language for describing that kind of unfairness. Because it's so antithetical to the way that we... Yeah, exactly. Like, it's so contrary to that. We're, we're like, well, that's not how proper people behave. And there, there's that, that like language that comes up. And it happens, in, it happens in me when I'm reading the scripture. So here's my suggestion for us. And this, this applies to both time and to relationships. When scripture says something that is confusing or is stark... Especially when it's dealing with a rule or like when it's with, with one of the, the parables that Jesus is giving. So whether you're reading from, from James or whether you're reading in, in Leviticus or, or in, in Chronicles or something. Wherever it is that you're reading, when you hit something in a passage that just stops you cold. You're like, I don't know what this word means. I don't understand this. Just pause with it for a second and ask, what else is this connected to? What else is this connected to? A really helpful practice for that is finding a, a Bible that has uh, intertextual notes. 
because oftentimes Bibles will just have, you know, in, in, the, in the bottom of the page, they'll, they'll link you back to other passages so that you can get a bigger sense. Like, why would it matter if seeds, two different seeds were planted in the same field? Like, I, it's so weird that there's got to be a reason. Have that assumption reading this, because at the end of the day, what was a limited resource was ink and paper. And so if the people in this culture spend enough time conveying these ideas to us, there's a reason for them. And I'm not saying that we should change the way that we do agriculture. What I'm saying is that maybe there's something beyond agriculture about our relationships with each other and the relationship between us and God that we have skipped over because we devalue the the relationship and we put more emphasis on whether I'm doing all of the right things. Uh, and that same thing, like you said, it's at, at this point, once we drop below the waterline, all of these things get so intermingled that it's hard to pull them apart. Like, like next week we're going to talk about virtues and vices and we're going to try to distinguish that from, from, from mores. Like, well, how do you distinguish between virtues and vices and mores? Aren't they the same thing? They're not, but we'll unpack that next week. But, the, but, but what I want you guys to take away from this is that the further into this we get, the, the deeper underwater we go, the more we're going to realize that this really is two cultures that talk in different ways. And so what we need to do is instead of, like the temptation is to get frustrated and to either ignore it or to skip over it. And what I want us to do is lean into it. When, when something seems confusing, I want to encourage you guys to lean into it. To, to, to mark that down. Just put it on a sticky note. Stick it to the front of your Bible so that in three or four days, when you have forgotten all about that question, you'll see the sticky note and remember, oh, when I get to coffee hour, when I get to Bible study on Wednesday, when I, when I see in so-and-so you know, at, at dinner, I want to make sure to ask this because maybe they've read something about it. And I'm not saying you can't. You, there, there are lots of resources here in our library. There are lots of resources online. I will probably do a talk about like how to do good research online because there's a lot of trash out there also because the internet is just sort of the wild west of information. You mean you shouldn't just click on the first link? You should Google not just you. click on the first if, link. If it's but Wikipedia, you should, because that's always yeah, that's always true. Always true. Yeah. But before we end, like I said, we're moving fast through these things because we're going to spend a lot of in-depth time talking about them in the next book. But before we move on, do you guys have any any thoughts? Any questions? Well, this is just it's kind of a general comment, but it's, it's interesting. I, I've heard multiple professors at Asbury who are teaching the mission department talk about how, you know, uh, we, coming from a boomer generation, they were working overseas. Um, people were, at that time were constantly trying to translate the four spiritual laws into whatever language they were working in. And they would start out, they would like go to someone in like a Tonga society and they would be like, just as the just as the world is ruled by the laws of physics, so too the spiritual world world is ruled by spiritual laws. Yes. And then, like every single time, no matter what, what is, like one guy was in Spain, different people in Southeast Asia, always a complete failure. <laughs> yeah, have no idea what you're talking. About. One of the best ways to sort of get out of our own headspace into this is is thinking about things in terms of patronage and uh, and and clientship. Not in, not in those terms, but to think about that relationship and the way that it, it governs the ancient world. And so that's going to be one of the big foci, foci, 
focuses, foci, uh, for the, the next book. There's a, a huge section in that book that explains in depth the way that patronage worked in that world. And that helps to unpack a lot of this because for us, again, it's so hard to think about the world around us and, and not think about it as, as structured in uh, a legal sense. But we'll leave it there. Do you Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, check out anchor.fm forward slash thin dash places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Father is restored.